Hello, Career Cohort. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Emily Wong, founder of Words of Distinction. We talk about tools for achieving career success, inspirational stories about overcoming career and life challenges, and how we can recalibrate our perspective to better enjoy the journey forward. My guest today is Erin Labax, and we're going to talk about strategic writing for leaders. Erin helps you write with confidence, clarity, and strategy. Her book and curriculum, High Value Writing, offer strategies for informing and connecting with readers and for using writing as a management tool. Erin has been teaching writing for 25 years in the academic, business, manufacturing, and public sectors. Welcome, Erin, and it's so great to see you again. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me on the show. It's terrific to have you because this is a topic I'm really curious about in that you help people influence others in a positive way, whether it's their team members or other stakeholders, by the way they choose their language. So I know you have this course in strategic writing for leaders. And within that overall strategy, I wondered if you could talk about the challenges your students face and then the tactics you recommend, maybe starting with writing for today's readers. Mm, Yeah, that's a great one, Emily. Well, thank you. Yes, I work with leaders to sort of intentionally recognize, here's the goal of my communication. And so here's how I will strategically use my words in order to meet that goal. Um, Therefore, making writing really a management tool. And I often say, hey, you're writing anyway. It's free to add your intention and strategy to your writing. And part of that, as you said, is writing for today's readers. A lot of us, I think, write with sort of our own logic. I call it the writer's logic, where something makes sense. Maybe A leads to B to C to D in our mind. And so we write it, hey, you, A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. But the reader is coming from a different angle. That might not be the logical order. And moreover, today's readers really are looking for a certain kind of writing, writing that's easy to access in our busy hustle culture, right? And we know what it's like. Emily and I, we love to read. And yet even me, I catch myself not finishing something I'm reading quite often, because if an email or something like that has not been written for today's readers, meaning kind of respecting my time, making it easy for me to learn, making it relevant for me, visually scannable, if it's not oriented to today's readers, we will lose readers from our writing. People will simply stop writing partway through, (laughs) as we've probably all been guilty of now and then before. You know, one of the things that you talk about is going back to making things easy. And one is that scannability. We're on a teeny tiny phone half the time. Mm -hmm. So we want that white space. One of the things that you brought up, which I thought was really interesting, was having the topic and then kind of a requested action in the headline or in the in the subject line. Can you talk about that a little bit? I sure can. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just thinking of that when you mentioned scannability. And it's so true. We can think about ourselves. We don't read. Let me go through this paragraph perfectly. We scan Mm -hmm. and look for what we need to do. And Mm -hmm. that's where that two-part subject line comes in. 
where if we say our topic in two to three words and then a colon, for example, and then our action required of the reader in two to three words, the goal being that when I'm scanning my emails, maybe I'm about to head home from work and I scan my emails and there's one that says food drive colon donate soon. I can already think, oh, hey, I need to stop at the store. I don't even have to open the email to know that I need to take an action. And I think that's what we mean by helping our reader, making it easy for them, making things usable from the reader's point of view in that way. And I've had, especially folks in recruitment, people who ask for things from others when they write have reported that strategy really helping because it clarifies to the reader, you know what, there's a step for you here. Right. Get ready to start kind of gauging how much time you have to set aside. So we're sort of respecting the reader's life in a way as we do that as well. Yeah. You know, you're talking about rec recruiters. And from the other side, I'm just thinking now, if I'm writing a resume and I'm sending a resume to a recruiter or hiring manager, maybe that subject line, I know this is a little bit different from what you're talking about, but I think it serves the same uh, purpose, Aaron, mm -hmm. of making it clear is that maybe you say subject line opening for a marketing director, colon, mm -hmm. resume attached. So the person doesn't like, oh no, what the, why is this person emailing me? Oh, and they're going to have their resume. So it makes it easy for me. That's right. And you said it right in your description there. Why is this person emailing me? So when I open, when I see an email come in, I'm thinking two things. What is this for? And do I need to do something? Yeah. And by the way you described that and that sort of topic action combo subject line covers both. Yeah. So we know, why did I get this and what am I supposed to do? And then also, you know, now that you're working in, you know, I know you're, a lot of your, your clients, your students are working in a remote world. Back to this talk of, you know, the serving the modern reader, what are some of the challenges you see happening, or whether it's over Slack or just email? Right. I think whether we're posting in sort of a project management platform or emailing, we're doing these sort of transactional modes of communication in a written way, right? Where we have to quickly inform somebody of something. I think what we want to look out for there, so maybe second to clarity, is also bringing in emotional intelligence, even in these shorter passages, mm -hmm. because people are looking to see, well, do I feel included in the way this has been written? Do I feel respected? Do I feel motivated? And we've, many of us have probably read something we wrote in the past and thought, oh shoot, I kind of missed the mark there. I made that sound very flat. It wasn't very, very motivating. It didn't inspire belonging. Um, but we're able to do that as writers when we sort of balance what I call writing IQ, mm -hmm. clarity, actionability, order, and writing EQ. Hey, how is this gonna land for this person? Will they feel respected? And when we can do both at once, now we have an open-minded, well-informed reader. So that's a good segue into the difference between, okay, so one of the things in modern writing is that we have to be concise. So how can we right. add a little warmth to that if we do want to be more inclusive? That's just the best question because writing is so much of walking a tightrope, balancing, right? And the one that Emily's talking about here is balancing concise and nice. Can we be concise mm. and nice? I love and, that. <laughs> right? It's just easy to remember. And, you know, the truth is we can. That is one of, for sure, especially since the pandemic, one of the most common questions I get in classes or consulting situations 
is, you know, I want this to be short and clear, but not rude, right? How do I do that? So yes, we can be concise and nice. What I advise is a two-step process that can help you make sure that the writing IQ and EQ hit your target. First thing, to write a concise sentence, the easiest thing we can do is just lead with who and what. Who did something? What did they do? So we could be like, Emily interviewed Aaron. I led with who and what. It's always more concise than if I didn't. Like, there was an interview and Aaron was spoken to by Emily. <laughs> Takes kind of a while. So that would be step one. Make your sentence concise by putting who and what in the beginning. Being caring, though, about who's your who. Do I want to say Emily interviewed Aaron or Aaron spoke in the podcast? I could give Emily the attention or Aaron. So that would be number one. I'm concise, but who's getting attention? And then number two would be the verb. Verbs are your best words. They're your power words for both concision, because a verb tells a whole story, and tone. So I could say something like, please join us for the session, or I could say, please attend the session. And I would get a different vibe out of that as a reader. Feeling like I want to attend or I want to join is a little different to me. Um, so if it was maybe we said, okay, Emily interviewed Aaron, Aaron was interviewed by Emily. Well, what if I say Aaron shared her thoughts with Emily? Emily welcomed Aaron's thoughts, right? There's so many different things we can do with a verb. So I would advise people, set your concision with a who, what sentence, and then get into your what and make sure it's conveying the right tone. If you want someone's feedback, are you going to invite it, request it, require it, welcome it, need it? So many different words, and that's where we bring in the EQ, but without making our sentence any longer, because we need a verb anyway. Right, right. And I think that, you know, choosing that verb, like shared, uh, it just, it sounds more intimate too, right? Yes. What they're sharing together. You know, it's interesting because you and I are so much on the same page of getting rid of those wasted words. And I know that you've talked a lot about getting rid of words like uh, in charge of, and just get to the point, what did he do or what did she do, led or oversaw or spearheaded, whatever that mm -hmm. is. Another one is responsible for. I don't use responsible for, and I don't use it at all in resumes because you can just get to the point with that verb. And yes. I know like, so resumes are more straightforward because you don't use pronouns, but you're also trying to save so much space, Right. Yeah. So you want space, you want white space and even those little words. And I've, I've talked about this before that, and I know you've had similar conversations, Erin. So here's an example, the scope of the project. You don't have to say that you could say the project scope and get rid of the word of, right? So right. that goes in line with a lot of the lessons that you've had where you can just get rid of those little tiny words. And, and I'm a fanatic about it because if you remove just one tiny word, you can end up avoiding an orphan line. Right. You can save space as well as words. Yeah. So going back to what you're talking about, then you have more room for the compassion part of that or the EQ. That's right. And, you know, I love your example of responsible for, because if we picture that in a sentence, it probably followed the word is or was. Yes. You know, Aaron is responsible for locking the doors or on my resume, I was responsible for security. 
but again, was responsible for, we could just, my question is always, is there a verb for that? Yeah. I supervised security. Mm -hmm. I managed lockdown, whatever it is. There's typically a verb that is stronger for you to convey what you did than something that begins with is. Is is a real dead verb. Can you, I'll just ask this to our listeners. Can you imagine someone ising? No. What does it mean to is? You know, we don't know. And so that's why if we're going to say, you know, Linda is responsible for this process, I would change it to Linda oversees the process because then I would both reduce words, is responsible for three words, goes to one with oversees. But I feel like I've given Linda more of a boost in terms of respecting her role. She oversees this. She just, she doesn't just is something. She oversees, she supervises. Good way to build respect on your teams. Yes. So we talked about building that kind of the empathy or the the EQ into that. And I think we, we have to unlearn all those things that we learned when we were younger, where more words is better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Definitely. So and and then making that room. You know, just as an aside, when I was starting in business, I remember thinking you can't start a an email with hi, because I thought that was too too personal, maybe. And then I saw my boss was saying hi. And, and and then you have to be kind of consistent with that because then if you if you do that all the time and then you start with just the name, then it sounds you're like you're suddenly getting, like you're getting yeah, yeah. You're you're wondering if you're getting yelled at, right? You're in trouble now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I have no issue with people who do start I want to make that clear. I have no issue with people who start that way. And if they're consistent, then you that's just their style. You know, just if I could just throw in one kind of habit, when you mentioned unlearning, Emily, the first thing that came to mind, I think most of us don't realize now for me, school was a long time ago, but nevertheless, school was where I developed my first beliefs about writing. And as we were all brought up, however long ago that was, there was one goal to our writing, which was show what you know. Mm-hmm. Show that you can do the vocab, you can do the citations, you can say the important things. And that, I think all of us, all your listeners, everyone, you know, check your mindset. Are we accidentally still remembering that pressure to mm-hmm. show what we know? Because that is the opposite of what a business reader wants. Right. At work, we do not want to read everything that someone knows or read a high vocabulary from them either. We want to read familiar, accessible language. Yes. And then going back to the making it easy to read these emails, you had some great ideas about how to make those, once you you open that email, what makes it easy to read? Yeah. So we've talked about how you might have a subject line that has two parts. It's almost like a preview of your topic and then your action. And then when a reader opens the email, there's a greeting. But then right after that, I advise people to do the very two things that were promised in the subject line. Number one, a sentence about the topic. I call it the main point sentence. And number two, the call to action. Another sentence that leads with a command verb that matches that second half of your subject line. So if I had stuck with, I think my example earlier was food drive colon donate soon for a topic action subject line, my main point sentence might cover, I usually advise covering the five W's in your main point sentence of your email. 
you know, where it might be like our team will participate in this food drive. We're going to be helping the community during these dates, et cetera. And then your second sentence matches the donate soon. So it'll be like, place your donations in the lobby, some kind of command verb. Mm -hmm. And so it's a three-step easy process for emails as you have the two-part subject line. And then right after you've said hello, sentence number one, main point with probably the five W's or at least four of them, who, what, when, where, why. Second sentence, call to action. Now, by the time I, the reader, have read the subject line and the first paragraph, I pretty much know everything about why I received this and what my own action is. And then we can put other details later for people who do continue reading, but we know the truth is not everybody reads the entire email or, or whatever the communication is. And that's yet another reason to pack that information into paragraph one. And you also talk about like, there are three strategies you have for the body, the hyperlinks, see below and headings. Yeah. Yeah. And I call all those optional information because in addition to the should, how do I be concise and nice balance? The other balance people always want to know is how do I not over-inform or under-inform? It's another really delicate balance. So I typically say, yeah, put the main point and call to action at the beginning. We all need that. But then provide optional information through a hyperlink or a paragraph below with a heading that says background, where we're not forcing people to read more because they may already know, but we are providing that option if someone needs the empowerment of a resource. Yeah, yeah. Those are excellent tips. One of the things I do on my newsletter, I started doing, somebody gave me this advice a couple of years ago is just to, at the top, talk about what will be discussed because I have multiple Mm -hmm. sections in my newsletter and uh, that's worked out very well. Somebody else sent a note recently and it just started with the first heading said TLDR, right? Too long, uh, too long, didn't read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was excellent because I had the the synopsis at the top and then, you know, he got more detailed at the bottom. Right. And we have to remember too, I think we were talking about this in another conversation, Erin, where depending on who our audience is and my experience in corporate was, I was much more brief when I was talking to somebody who was the president versus somebody who was in in tech who needed to understand my problem so that they could create a report for me. Right. Well, and the way you described that, Emily, showed why you would do it differently because you were saying that the tech person needs to write a report. They need the details. And the person with a million, you know, people, stakeholders to answer in that moment needs the short one. So our choices are always situational based on who will read it and what our goal is. Right. Talking about the different people within the organization, another thing you brought up was the last time we talked, you were talking about a a challenge that some people will inadvertently use different language that's more respectful for somebody who's higher in the company versus somebody else. Can can you talk a little bit about that? And And trigger words too would probably be the next part of that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Emily. This was a sort of new discovery for me that I heard recently from a student within the public sector and a a researcher um, in our public sector who mentioned that when she observes the different ways that folks are conversing through Slack, Teams, Rike, whatever the tool is, she was actually noticing that publicly in front of everyone, 
some people's questions would get answered sooner and with more respectful language and more detail, and other people's questions would get sort of answered more dismissively. And so she started noticing, oh no, it's tracking with the hierarchy. And she was able to create a parallel where she would see people who are higher ranked receiving more respectful comments and respectful just ways of saying things, considerate ways of saying things. But when people were, quote, lower on the ladder, they were just receiving it in a dismissively stated manner. And the issue that I, I was shocked by this because you know what? It's happening in front of people. Yeah. That's the issue is, I mean, it's an issue anyway to not respect somebody, but when we're doing it in front of others where we're showing and even a leader could set an example and leaders are being watched and their, their communication models for other people. And so if they're not treating people respectfully at all levels of the organization, others will notice that. Because respect isn't something that's just abstract. It manifests and shows up through our speaking and writing. So, you know, to kind of bring in your point about trigger words too, we could say words like you and your might be used differently, where leaders might be approached where I disagree with them, let's say, and I might say it in a much more caring manner, or I wasn't able to, you know, find this information in the email. My thoughts are X, Y, and Z. But then it's a sort of, quote, low person, and they're kind of like, no, I don't like it. You know, yeah. not answering respectfully or your idea is not helpful. And then using that trigger word of you, making it even more felt disrespectfully for that reader. You know, you brought up such a good point, too, that, okay, so on the one side, this leader is modeling behavior for other people. And then on the flip side of that, somebody above that person mm. might be watching. Yeah, that's and so true. That making a decision about whether or not this person should get a promotion. Yep. Your writing is public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that servant leader gets bandied around a lot. Are we really walking that talk? I think we it, we could use some self-reflection. And I feel like I am constantly aware of what I'm putting down and how I'm communicating and I still mess up. Mm -hmm. it, it is an, it is a lifelong learning experience. Well, it is. And especially because communication changes over time, right? Yes. Industries and generations develop different norms mm -hmm. and then we all learn from those. And I think kind of when you were mentioning how you think about these things so often when you're writing, it made me think about how important it is as leaders and writers to write with an other focus more than mm -hmm. a self-focus. Yes. And just remembering, you know, if you're not journaling or taking notes, you are not writing for you. Right. All of us are probably writing for other people 98% of the time. And yet we're often thinking about ourselves when we write our understanding of the situation, our needs, other focus, we can shift that paradigm and, and make better choices in our writing. Especially, I really liked your point about how this leader who's setting a model for their direct reports and everyone else who sees their writing is also potentially being watched from above. And I think that's yet another reason why that leader would want to balance clarity with empathy to show I am also good at managing humans and understanding of human behavior because clarity and information, that's not all a leader needs to do, right? They need to be a manager of humans and we can show 
through writing choices that do things like build community by putting the focus on other people than ourselves. And we can show that. And then we get back to sort of walking the talk a little more with servant leadership. If we believe that we are servant leaders, it should show up in our sentences. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I led my team to success. No, that's not a servant leader, right? It, it needs to be like Priya and Shea discovered the first thing that led our team to success. And I'm using our and team instead of my and I. I have a an argument with, you know, obviously when we're in writing resumes and LinkedIn, you know, we have to shine. And, and there are a lot of people, I, I work with clients who are amazing, have amazing backgrounds and still are they could have a little nudge away from being too humble. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there is a balance in writing in your LinkedIn profile, especially if you're high up, right? Maybe if you're middle manager, then yeah, you know, definitely take all that credit. But when you're a leader, you don't want to be saying I, 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 because there are obviously people who work for you. So talking about how you have great pride for the way your team did this. And I think that conveys to the recruiter, well, this person really is that servant leader that we're looking for, because it's in job descriptions, too, that they want a servant leader attitude. Yeah, it's so true. There's so much to balance when we do our resume, but showing that it's not just about ourselves, but what we do for others, I think, is really desired by hiring officials today. I think so, too. I think that is a modern a modern thing. Uh, I watched uh, one of your videos on should that one of those trigger words, and I, I'll tell you about a story about it afterwards. But can yeah. you talk a little bit about that because that's a great one. Should is a toughie, right? And I I often bring up with students or participants in my classes. You know, there's a saying from self help and self care, which is don't should all over yourself, mm-hmm. and it means don't beat yourself up. You know, I should have eaten healthier. I should have worked out this morning. I should have been nicer in that phone call, blah, blah, blah. We've probably all been there, right? And it's not very productive. And so there's a reason why there's that phrase, don't should all over yourself. Well, in business writing, I say don't should all over others either because nobody wants to be shoulded all over. Right. And because the worst thing we can do to a reader is take away their agency, their empowerment and choice over their life. And so we don't want to do that. Um, Words like should, especially if it were to come after a you, you should have done this. Uh, One of my examples recently was maybe we did a session and we're following up and we say, you should have learned everything you needed in the session. It sounds as if, if you didn't learn it, that was because of you, Mm -hmm. but maybe it was because of me. Maybe I didn't explain it very well. Um, And then that led to a sort of second related trigger word, which might be you still. If you still need more info because you didn't get it, Mm -hmm. right? It might be like, (laughs) if I can provide more information, right? Right, right. I mean, as in you didn't get it the first time in your mind, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, so I have to tell you, because we're of like minds here. A few months ago, I was walking with my girlfriend, Mira. We were walking our dogs and we were talking about language. And I said, one of the things that I noticed that can be annoying is when somebody says should, you should. And I was more talking about it in a you know, regular conversation with a friend or whatever that is, because I feel like it can put people back on your heels. And so we were talking about this and being very analytical. And later I was talking to one of my siblings about it. 
And then I moved on to another conversation about my son who was trying to make a decision about something. And I said, and I told him he should. And then my sibling said, did you just say should? Yeah, right. <laughs> because it's, we're, that is really ingrained in us. And, you know, in taking coaching courses, mm -hmm. that's one thing that we learn is even when you're coaching someone, you're supposed to be the guide of that person, your client, and you're helping them figure out their problems. So that's not the word you would use anyway, but we just use it so much in our language. Right. And I think, yeah, it's just sort of built into the way we've grown up saying things. And I guess I would encourage our listeners to do a little experiment because sometimes I'll start speaking and I'll hear myself say, well, maybe you should. And I go, oh, Aaron, you know, they're just <laughs> going to be feeling defensive right away. So try two different ways. You know, if you have a suggestion, maybe you should look at this option. And then you could say a different time, have you tried looking at this option or would it be helpful to look at this option? And those are all ways to say it without a you should and just gauge, you know, the, the look on the other person's face. Because I've noticed those sort of micro expressions of feeling defensive, like we need mm -hmm. to protect ourselves when I accidentally say something like, well, you didn't do this and you should have. And I see the person start freezing up and getting uncomfortable because they feel accused. And yet I can provide criticism in a whole nother way by saying, have you tried this idea? I saw this done well on this other example. Oh, maybe I will. You know, it just keeps the conversation open. You know, and even you and I who really are, are tuned into this, are, we, we still get tripped up by this. And, I, and I'm wondering if it goes back to what you were saying before, Erin, that we feel like we have to know everything, mm -hmm. right? So if somebody is asking for advice, maybe they're just asking for your ear right? and they don't want you to say should anyway. I'm going <laughs> off on a little tangent here, but it's all that communication, right? And yeah. I'm telling you, that is something that I'm really, really trying to change. And I feel like I'm rewiring my brain with that mm -hmm. one little word. That's interesting. Well, yeah. And I think it might be harder or easier for different of a, among us, depending on the roles you've had in life. And so me, I've been a parent and a teacher. They're both fairly instructive roles. So I have yeah. to be real careful and same with Emily, I think. And maybe if someone has had work roles where they don't kind of tell people what to do, it will be a little easier to shake that should have it. Right, right. But that was such a great example. So I appreciated that. Yeah, good. Let me yeah. see what else we have here. Um, I think projecting and inspiring confidence. I, I think you kind of touched on that. Did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, I'd like to briefly say that as we've talked quite a bit here about how to respect people through our writing, I also encourage everyone to balance respecting others and respecting ourselves. Because it's true, even as we work so hard to respect others, that doesn't mean that we want to come along and say in an email, it's just an idea, but I wonder if we might want to take a look at X and Y, because now I'm disrespecting myself. Mm -hmm. I'm making it sound a little dismissive, as if my idea probably isn't that great anyway. And I, I Aaron Labax, have caught myself, actually, you know, I've talked with other authors about this where that has been one of my fails. I stopped saying, I think such and such a while back, because that's another one, right? If you're saying it, you're probably thought it. So we don't have to say, I think, no, no, no. 
but I would catch myself using the word just and yes. other people would use the word only. It's only a thought, but so we don't have to use those hedges and to write in a way where we sound confident and capable, we want to get to the action sooner, which is back to those verbs. So instead of something like, I wonder if maybe we should consider the impact of last quarter, we could say like, let's consider the impact of last quarter. And right. now I've gotten to my verb on word two, consider, because we do sound more confident when we get action oriented, use active language like that and verbs that show us doing things. And so I think we want to be careful as we respect others, not to do it such to the extent where we've put ourselves second. We still want to be equal <laughs> with our readers. That's a really great point. And I think it's something that we can learn to balance mm -hmm. all the time. And, and we also have to protect our own boundaries. If right. someone comes to us for something or for a request, it's unreasonable. How do we say, well, uh, yeah, I don't know, whatever that request is, but it, it's not reasonable and we know it's not reasonable, but we don't want to burn that bridge either. Yeah, I know that's so hard. And I know for myself from social conditioning, I used to think, well, whatever they need is really important. I'm going to go try <laughs> to provide it. And then later I realized, you know, Aaron, what you need is also important. So we want to kind of keep both both people in mind. Um, yeah. So if someone is pushing beyond our scope of our work, but we're afraid to say no, we can often do things like use what I call productive language. Well, here's what I can do. Next week, I have Tuesday afternoon open. Do you want to chat about this? But yeah, I can't do it this week. Right, right. Or here's another alternative to what you're asking me to do. It's kind of on the lines of what you're right. saying, Erin. Mm -hmm. um, and I think coming up with alternatives will always soften it. And the other person might even get the message, hmm, I was probably asking for too much and without you saying it or without you being mean about it, because people are, they're just, they're going about their day. People are very, very busy. And I think that at the end of the day, it's easier to get it right the first time. And I coach people to you know, at the end of the day, do your emails and answer them quickly, blah, blah, blah. But there's also a caveat to that because you also have to be careful because if you do it the wrong way, then you're spending your time cleaning up afterwards. So you have to decide. Oh, is that true? Yeah. yeah. Decide which, which emails are the ones that you just shoot off real quickly. Right. Well, that's so true. Yeah. And it shouldn't be depending on if that person is higher in the hierarchy or lower. Right. 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 We should yeah. try to show our equal treatment and care for others yeah. in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, and that goes also go, going back to talking with job seekers, reminding job seekers that you may be trying to get the job with a hiring manager, but the receptionist is probably the gatekeeper. Oh yeah. And, and also that receptionist can have a very close relationship with a hiring manager and and you and I know, I mean, we should be treating everybody with respect anyway, but that is another reason that you've got to be consistent, right? It's so true. Oh, did I just say got to be? <laughs> That's another, well, <laughs> that could be a triggering, that could be triggering, right? Let's all be consistent with how <laughs> yes, we communicate with everybody. consistent language. <laughs> there you go, right? Well, and it's true because, yes, it's in our best interest to be respectful to everyone, but remembering, too, that writing 
you know, not to scare us all, but it it often lasts forever, right? If I wrote an email along with my resume and then they wrote back and a, a different person wrote to me who's actually sort of just collecting the resumes, not going to be the one to decide. Well, somebody is going to see if I write a dismissive email to that person because I don't think they're important. That's a really good point. You never know who's going to be added to that thread. Right. Did we cover everything from your training program, Erin? We did. You know, I think the only thing we haven't covered is that I have some advice in there about giving feedback in a way that's tangible and productive. Yeah. Did you want to add that? Yeah. I'll just quickly share, you know, basically what it comes down to, and we all know this just as humans, but not all feedback is helpful. Um, We might receive feedback that's sort of laden with the word you and negativity and not receive it well, or we might just receive feedback that's too vague. For example, Aaron, you need to improve your emails. Okay, in in what way? Are they too long? Are they not clear? Or am I not using the CC correctly? And so often when I help, even in a formal situation, managers with their performance reviews, we're not gonna say, so-and-so communicates well, but needs to contribute more in meetings. Well, communicates well in what way? You know, show it. And so I usually I offer sort of a formula really that we can use that's who plus what, who did what, plus the word by, and then how, where it's like Aaron uses good communication strategies by making eye contact mm-hmm. and just getting things tangible and also respectful and productive so that the reader is both informed and further motivated. To, to benefit. Um, and it also talks about keeping your reader and yourself in a growth mindset where we're always looking for ways to grow and not using language that makes the situation feel like it's over or done. Yeah. Like I can't do that. I'm no good at I'm no good at technology. That's not a growth mindset. That is not right. how we want to speak in front of our teams. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good kind of a wind down. And I just want to make sure that everybody knows how to reach you, Erin, because you put out some really great content on LinkedIn. And I think that comes from YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about your book and your class and, and any other ways for, so people can find you and connect with you? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity, Emily. Um, a lot of what we've covered, to, probably everything we've covered today is gone into in further depth in either the book, High Value Writing, Real Strategies for Real World Writing, and you can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the biggies. And then uh, the rest of the content is really expanded on in the Strategic Writing for Leaders class, which is courses.highvaluewriting.com, or you can just go to the highvaluewriting.com website and click on register for a class. But strategic writing for leaders is the one that has all those units on using language strategically to meet the needs of today's readers and to manage with both information and emotional sensitivity in our writing. And I'd love to connect with folks on LinkedIn, um, just Erin Labax and High Value Writings on there too. And then lastly, we have a YouTube channel with the same handle at High Value Writing. And that will all be in the show notes. So if you're taking a walk and listening to this, don't worry, you'll have that information. Yeah, great. Thanks again, Erin. It was great talking to you. I love talking nerdy word stuff. It was a lot of fun, Emily. (laughs) Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Career Cohort. I'm Emily Wong. You can find all my podcasts and blog posts at wordsofdistinction.net. And if you'd like to chat about how I can help you define the next step in your career and achieve your goals, head on over to the same website and book a time on my calendar for a free consult. In the meantime, please be sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great content. Thank you.